Alrighty, since it's 1.20, I think we'll go ahead and get started. I see that the we still have a couple people in the waiting room, but um, we will go ahead. Well, welcome everyone. I'm so excited that you all decided to join us today. Um, I'm Victoria. We'll do some more introductions in a minute, but I just wanted to, um, oh wait, there we go, um, display our agenda for what's in store for this afternoon. So first we're gonna do some introductions, have you all get to know us a little bit and the work that we do at Health Law Advocates. Um, and then we'll do a presentation on our process in um, creating and implementing the DEI committee. And we'll leave some time for Q&A for after we share our process, um, if you have any questions about that. Um, and the title of this is Learning from One Another. So we will be going into breakout rooms after the Q&A portion of this so that you can talk a little bit more about the work that you are all doing in your organizations and kind of brainstorming ways that you can also get started with the DEI, um, any DEI initiatives that you have. Um, and after the breakout rooms, we will be going into, we'll just come back together and then we will do a closing remarks um, and kind of next steps. So I'm going to pass it over to Amara. Amara, if you have any information that you'd like to share, you can go ahead and do that. I believe everyone already has access to um, the professional bios that, that we've shared, um, but just any key points that you wanted to touch on, you can go ahead. Yes, please don't bother reading the bio on this slide. Um, I'll just summarize and to introduce myself. My name is Mara Schulman. I'm a supervising attorney in the Mental Health Advocacy Program for Kids which is a program of health law advocates. We provide um, representation to families whose children are experiencing unmet mental health needs. Um, and then this year, I have been really um, lucky to get to chair our DEI committee. And so I'll be sharing a lot of that process with you today. So glad to have you join us. Thank you, Mara. Kara, you can introduce yourself. Sure. Good afternoon, folks. My name is Kara Hervitz. I'm a staff attorney with Health Law Advocates uh, as well. I work within our general legal practice side on our public programs uh, division specifically. Uh, and I'm excited to folks, excuse me, I'm excited to speak with folks today um, in the next couple of hours. Um, and with that, I will go ahead and uh, talk, uh, hand over the baton. I think Alex is probably the next person on this slide. Everyone, um, I'm Alexandra, Alex, whichever you prefer. I can't decide which one I like better. Um, I use she, her pronouns, and I'm an Equal Justice Works fellow with Health Law Advocates. Um, so I graduated law school in 2020 and um, started with HLA right after. So I, my Equal Justice Works project is a medical legal partnership for immigrants um, in Massachusetts. Thank you, Alex. And I'm Victoria. I'm the um, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion intern at HLA. Um, I go to Penn State. I'm a rising senior. I'm majoring in biobehavioral health with a minor in social justice and education, and I will be getting working on my master's uh, coursework in the fall. Um, once again, it's just super exciting to be here. For anyone new who just joined, welcome. Um, we are just so excited to have you. We also just wanted to take a minute to get to see who is in the room. So I'm gonna go ahead and stop sharing for a moment just to switch um, screens here. Um, but if you are unfamiliar with Poll Everywhere, it's a tool that you can use just to kind of gather data quickly. So I'm going to go ahead and share that real quick. 
Um, and we would love to know what area of law everyone in the room practices, um, whether that's health or immigration or housing or anything of that sort. So if you could go ahead and um, just type one or two words that describe the area of law you practice, that would be great. This is a word cloud, so it's just going to display all of the um, areas of law that we have represented here. It hasn't given us the option to do that yet. Is there um, is there a link that you can drop in the chat perhaps? Yes, so if you go to pollev.com slash quietstream, which is just a random generated URL link, um, you should be able to get to this website, but I can also drop it in the chat for us. I apologize. You've told me that before, Victoria, but <laughs> I just asked that question on behalf of everybody else who might not know. Thank you. No problem. I'll go ahead and, oh, thank you, Kara. Alrighty, we have a really large spread of um, people in the room with us. Thank you all. I think it says that the poll is full, no longer accepting responses. I, my apologies on that, but it looks like we have a really wide spread of people who are with us. So I'm going to go ahead and switch back over to the PowerPoint. All right, um, so we're just gonna get into um, our process of creating um, the DEI committee. Um, Mara was so gracious enough to categorize um, this process into four phases. So just an overview of phase one with actually forming a DEI initiative. Um, some of the things that we've done in this phase was develop a foundational or developed foundational and guiding materials. We've also collected data and solicited input from staff members. And we've also identified roles and responsibilities that were necessary for um, forming this initiative. So I'm gonna let Mara um, talk a little bit more about this phase. So there's a lot of text on the screen and I, and I don't want you necessarily to read it all. I'm gonna just point um, out some key things that I wanna share with you. Um, as Victoria just said, you know, the first, uh, phase was, and let me just back up for one second, because I think it's really important to share that we had the benefit of consulting with Tanisha Taylor, who introduced, um, who put together this entire conference and introduced our keynote speaker this morning. So Tanisha was um, so um, helpful and pivotal in providing us with some direction on how to do this process. So I really encourage anyone who wants to um, develop a DEI initiative at their organization to consult with someone who uh, who has you know expertise in that area. Um, so a lot of the things that we did were stemmed out of my conversations with Tanisha. Uh, so, but I wanna reiterate what Victoria just said about developing some sort of foundational or guiding documents that we used and returned to throughout our process. So we created a mission statement. Um, that's item two here after we formed the committee. Oops. 
Did the screen just disappear? Thanks, Victoria. Um, and we uh, developed and disseminated a baseline staff survey. So everyone at our organization took this survey during one of our staff meetings. Um, that was really pivotal in getting staff's input and ideas about what our committee should be doing at HLA. Um, we use the results of that survey to develop goals and identify areas for growth of growth for us. We also developed, here's another real foundational kind of document for us was governing principles because we need to identify what the roles were and what the responsibilities were for different people on the committee. We also developed group norms. We collected and developed evaluation tools for goals, that's item seven. And then we formed topical subcommittees of which there were three and you'll be hearing more about that a little bit later. Um, we presented to our board of directors and we requested an allocation of a budget. So really key to this phase one was creating some documents that could guide our process. And one thing that Tanisha shared with me early on that's really made you know impact on me was that we can return to these documents at any point in time. We can change them, we can modify them as, as our needs change or as we identify things that we didn't necessarily um, recognize earlier on in our process. The, um, and then um, I guess I'll save the next thing I was gonna say to the next slide actually, thanks. Yeah, no problem. So within the second uh, phase here, um, Mara also categorizes as setting intentions and securing commitment from leadership. So this looked like holding regular meetings and facilitating ongoing activities within the organization. So Mara, I'll let you talk a little bit more about this phase as well. Thanks. So what I was about to say, and then I realized I should hold off until we got to phase two, which is that the dates in that first column are really not important. Um, I just wanted to include them because I wanted folks to see how um, we met regularly. I think meeting regularly is really important to um, building momentum, sustaining momentum, and creating accountability. Um, so we met bi-weekly at the onset of our formation. And then once we had established subcommittees, we started meeting monthly. So some of the things that we did during this um, phase two that I, um, I think are pretty central to our work were um, item number two, our subcommittee started meeting regularly to take in that input from the baseline staff survey, develop goals, um, start to implement them. Um, Items, item three, we had uh, our executive directors here in the audience, Matt Selig, he uh, allocated a period of, of our monthly staff meetings every month to the DEI committee. And we um, provided updates on our activities as well as facilitated conversations with our entire staff on issues that were related to fostering the climate of inclusion or increasing competency um, in our relevant skill areas. And for example, um, Victoria, facilitated conversation at our last staff meeting on white supremacy culture in the workplace. And in previous staff meetings, um, uh, the Kara and Alex and I facilitated conversations on how to call in colleagues if um, we are the recipient of or have, have observed um, instance of discrimination or microaggression in the workplace. So we've identified relevant issues and then we provide, you know, like a mini training to our staff and then we facilitate a conversation in it so that we can develop competency in that area. Um, I think I said earlier that we've been attending our board meetings regularly, providing them with an update. I think this is really key. 
Um, first of all, we can get a lot of input from our board members because they have a lot of experience that can benefit us in our work. And also they give us a lot of encouragement. Um, so it's, it's really a fantastic opportunity to share ideas and build momentum. Um, item five, this happened pretty early on, and I think this is really key as well, is making sure that the whoever um, you know, holds leadership roles in your organization is really um, committed to advancing this work and is working in partnership with the committee. So you know, our senior management updated our job descriptions, our performance evaluations, and our supervision protocols really early on to reflect the competency areas that we want to develop um, out of our, our DEI uh, work at, at HLA. Um, and then finally, we secured a budget. Obviously, we need to allocate, we need an allocation of funds so that we can um, consult, get trainers, uh, and we're going to talk more about how we use that budget in, in some subsequent slides. Okay, um, so moving right into some of the phase three, which is some of the major action steps that we took this year. Um, the, the, one of the early things that we did was that our uh, community partnership outreach and policy subcommittee uh, held an organization-wide event to raise awareness about each other's um, activities because we identified early on that because we have different programs within our organization, we don't always know what's going on in different programs. We don't actually always know what our colleagues um, areas of expertise are and how can we do a good job of, of sharing information and providing, you know, uh, community informed um, advocacy if we don't even know what each other are doing in the organization. So we started um, really at the ground with this this subcommittee to try to build um, understanding and appreciation of each other's work so that we can collaborate more easily in the future. Uh, then that was in March of this year. And then another big accomplishment for us is in this goes back to the um, the allocation of funds, the budget that we secured from our board, is we created a paid internship program because we wanted to make sure that internships at HLA were not um, were, were available to everybody who was interested in working in health equity and not available only to people who could afford to do an unpaid internship over the summer. And so we created a paid internship program. We hired um, four legal interns and a DEI intern, and they have been such fantastic assets to our organization this summer. We're so lucky to have them. And this internship program, this paid internship program is going to be an ongoing um, part of HLA each summer. Um, and in June, we held our training and um, capacity building subcommittee. Um, brought together the entire staff for a half-day retreat facilitated by Dr. Raul Fernandez, um, and he addressed some of the areas that have been identified during our baseline staff survey as areas that staff wanted more training on. Um, and then in July, our senior management team adopted an equity investment recruitment and hiring policy that our, that our committee developed that really seeks to undo systemic barriers to candidates from historically marginalized communities and to explicitly place value on the skills and abilities that have not been historically recognized and that have not been historically valued in recruitment and hiring. So those are four of our um, big actions that we, we took over you know, the last few months.
I, I apologize. There was one more on here that I forgot about, um, and this is this is fantastic. This is this is phase four. This is about evaluation. We really need to keep gathering more data, reflecting on what we've done because, um, and seeking input from our staff because we wanna make sure that we don't stagnate, that we're continuing to build momentum, identifying areas that we need to invest in and grow in. And so we did it, um, well, Victoria put together a fantastic um, follow-up to our baseline staff survey from last year. And at our last staff meeting um, in July, that was disseminated, our entire staff completed it. And um, we have, not had a chance yet to look at all the results and figure out how to use them, but that is next. That is what one of the next major steps that our committee will be undertaking. All right. Um, previously, um, Mara also mentioned that um, the DEI committee put together a mission statement. So I also wanted to take a moment to share that with all of you. Um, so this is the mission statement that was put together by our DEI committee. Um, last year. So the mission of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee at Health Law Advocates is to step fully into the job of advancing equity at the individual, organizational, and system levels. To achieve this mission, we will develop and implement short and long-term goals aimed at identifying and dismantling instances of inequity while continually monitoring the effectiveness of our work in four um, realms. So the first realm is within ourselves. So we work to develop a supportive workplace and also creating relevant tools, um, shared vocabulary, creating trainings, all of those things to help HLA staff members explore um, issues of diversity and identity and also equity, um, and also really doing that internal work to confront um, our own biases and understanding the privileges that we have. The second um, realm that this mission statement aims to um, identify, whoops, is within our organization. Um, so we work to develop internal policies and practices that are equitable and inclusive um, within the organization to make sure that we are representative of the communities that we serve um, and making sure that staff members feel supported and safe. Um, and this is always an ongoing process and that's why evaluation um, as in the fourth phase that Mara is talking about is so important. Um, we also are looking to monitor the effectiveness of our work in our client community as well. Um, so we're working to develop practices that are responsive to empowering our client needs um, and just making sure that the experiences of our clients are elevated. And then in the last um, realm that our mission statement touches on is within the larger community and within the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Um, and we are aiming to advocate for anti-racist policy reforms at the state, federal, and other institutional levels, which is all just super exciting work. I think it's also important to mention that creating this mission statement was a collaborative uh, process. And as um, we were talking about it with the keynote speaker earlier this morning, it's really important just to work um, as a group and you cannot do this work alone. So um, I think that having a DEI committee, especially at HLA is just super important. So here are the roles um, and responsibilities that we have um, within the DEI committee. Um, we have our executive director, Matt, who is here with us. Um, he's just so wonderful and I'm happy that he's here. Um, so what his role within the DEI committee is to receive reports from, committee, from the committee chair, who is Mara, um, in preparation for quarterly board meetings. And then the role that the board plays within this process um, is we invite them to attend committee meetings and oversee um, our budget requests. 
Um, like I mentioned before, Mara is our committee chair. Um, so she is serving for a term of one year and she organizes um, and pretty much oversees all of the committee um, responsibilities. And she also coordinates the activities and meetings. The steering team, which is um, Mara, Alex, and Kara, they also serve for a term of one year and work with um, Mara as a, as a support. And then we have our three subcommittees. Um, the subcommittees are six month commitment and one member from each subcommittee is in charge of recording the meeting minutes and just sharing progress during our um, general committee meetings. Um, so we have the training and capacity building subcommittee, the organizational uh, development subcommittee and the community partnerships outreach and policy subcommittees. Um, so I'm going to turn it over to Kara to talk a little bit more about the goals um, within the training and capacity building subcommittee. Uh, sure. So as uh, Victoria was just mentioning, uh, each of us are going to talk about one subcommittee. I'm going to talk about the training and capacity building subcommittee. Um, so we had three major goals for the past year. Obviously, the first one was identifying and scheduling relevant training events that would benefit the staff um, and create ongoing educational opportunities, um, particularly as education can be a bit of a moving goalpost. We want to make sure that is a continuous goal. Um, we also wanted to develop and implement strategy to advance uh, an organizational commitment to adopting inclusive language. And again, that's also a bit of a moving target. So um, we want to make sure that's an ongoing um, process that uh, permits uh, for further education on changes and evolution in language and inclusivity. Um, and then the third piece uh, that's sort of related to those additional two pieces that we wanted to focus on um, for this year were um, to look at all of our uh, policies, our website, all of our published materials and identify um, uh, opportunities to advance an anti-racism agenda on an ongoing basis. Uh, so those were the three, three goals of the training and capacity building subcommittee. They were pretty concrete, uh, but pretty comprehensive. So I'll be sh I'll be sharing about the organizational development subcommittee, and I'm I'm actually um, th there's two slides here. One deals with very general general goals to our organization, and one slide deals with goals that are um, specific to our senior management team. Uh, so the first one is soliciting an annual budget. I think that's um, and our and our executive director uh, facilitates that process by going to the board, and that's that's really key because. As I said earlier, you need an allocate. You need some funds in order to do some of the work and um, move forward on some of the goals that we've identified. Um, number two, develop a policy that prioritizes the hiring of people from unrepresented, underrepresented groups. Um, we did, you know, develop a um, equity uh, recruitment and hiring policy very recently uh, that was adopted. Um, the third goal is one that we're just we're really excited to be um, putting into practice as we return to the office. We've been working remotely for the, the last year and, and really not really engaging so much with the tangible world. I don't really, as I told Victoria this morning, I can't remember the last time I picked up a pen and paper and I was really excited that I actually was taking some hand notes earlier. But um, as we return and we start buying food and other things for events, um, we're, we have a commitment to purchasing our supplies from business owners who have experienced structural inequity rather than um, large corporations that really benefit from the structural inequity um, that exists by consolidating their power. And I think it's notable that Jeff Bezos is traveling to outer space today, um, which is he's able to do because um, of his uh, 
his consolidation of resources. Um, so we will not be purchasing from companies that that function in that way. We'll be purchasing um, from companies uh, whose owners have um, been disadvantaged by capitalism. Um, for we have not made a lot of progress on this goal, but we really want to figure out how do I um, collect demographics. Uh, de demographic data and use it to advance um, our goals around building equity. Um, pay, offering paid internships to students. Um, I talked about earlier how we have created a in paid internship program, um, the goal of which is to attract a more diverse applicant pool to make um, interning at HLA uh, uh, opportunities available to anyone um, who who's interested in, in promoting health equity. Um, we want to uh, Hire staff with language abilities other than English, particularly the languages that are spoken by people in the communities we serve. Um, and we want to consider divesting from mutual funds that may con contribute to structural oppression. I'm not going to read all the leadership specific goals, but I did share earlier how, um, you know, getting uh, your uh, members of the leadership or management team um, on board with the DEI committee's goals is really key. And we've been really fortunate to have a lot of support from our leadership and um, working in, in partnership in conjunction with them to, to advance our goals. Um, and I'm really grateful for that. Hi, Ren. Yeah, so I was working with the Community Partnerships Outreach and Policy Subcommittee. Um, the reason why we created this subcommittee is because we very much recognize that DEI work isn't just what we do with each other, and we are an organization that's very present in Massachusetts as a whole, and we wanted to make sure um, that the work that we were doing um, and the things that we were learning with were reverberating throughout the Commonwealth and in really tangible ways. Um, so like Mara mentioned earlier, we when we originally sent out information about um, a DI committee forming and what people wanted, people were very, um, on our team, were very vocal about how we don't really know what each other does. Um, so we did have that interdepartmental event and people really enjoyed it, just learning about each other's work. And I've already felt since that event that we've gotten cross referrals um, and people have reached out to each other with questions so much more. And when we onboarded our interns, I noticed that people from other teams would come to the training sessions for the interns of other people's teams. So I thought that was really effective. Um, but we also wanted to just make sure that our um, work was being disseminated to communities that we're actually serving so that the work that we do is centered in community needs. And so this also includes building language accessibility, uh, both in our written materials that we send out to clients and in our website, which we're working on. Um, we're trying to raise our profile with law schools and clinic and co-op students and, and being intentional about who we recruit. So I was a member of Black Law Students Association um, in during law school and a lot of other people were parts of affinity groups. So we're making sure that um, when we are looking for internship or job opportunities, we're reaching out to those spaces as well. And um, that includes like a diverse network of pro bono attorneys and um, ultimately just making sure that we are outreaching to communities that have actually experienced a structural inequality because I feel like so much of this work it's really easy to lose sight of the community that's actually um, being supported. So those were the goals of this community, of this um, subcommittee. And I feel as though this one's sort of a, an ongoing forever. I mean, they're all ongoing forever uh, processes, but I think that this is one that um, we really were looking towards like changing the face of how HLA works with clients and how um, we publicize ourselves in throughout the state.
Thank you. I also think it's important to reflect on how our own identities played a role in the process of creating the DEI committee and just making sure that all of the work that we do is so that we can achieve the goal of equity, especially within HLA. So I'm going to stop sharing for a moment just to give um, each of us a minute to kind of answer this question. All right. I don't know who wants to start, Mara, Alex, or, or Kara, if you want to tackle that first. I can start. Um, I love that um, that we were asked this question when we were putting together the conference. MLAC asked us this question, asked us to consider it, and I'm really grateful to them for, you know, encouraging us to think about this. Um, when I was thinking about it, I um, identified, you know, that I've really experienced a fair amount of privilege in my life due to race, socioeconomic status, and other aspects of my social identity. And when I think about that, um, one attribute of this sort of privilege that really stands out to me is that it's unearned, um, meaning that there's nothing I've done in my lifetime that entitles me to it. And another aspect of that sort of privilege that really stands out for me is that it oftentimes can be invisible to its holder, meaning that I won't necessarily see it in every instance where it exists. So when I think about those two attributes of, of privilege, um, that it's unearned and oftentimes invisible, um, that really shapes how I think of my role um, on the DEI committee at HLA. I don't wanna forget for a second um, that this sort of privilege is unearned and I don't wanna ever stop interrogating the systems and stories that have been designed to keep this sort of privilege invisible to its holders. So this has really shaped how I think of my, my work on the, um, in, in advancing our, our goals at HLA. Um, I think my role is to work really hard, to be curious, um, to be creative, to collaborate, uh, and to be willing to not avoid risks and discomfort that are inherent to challenging the status quo. So um, even if I have to engage in some serious self-interrogation or practice deep humility, that's, that's the role that this, um, that I believe um, I stand in. And, um, you know, from this work, a different kind of privilege emerges, the sort of privilege that, um, that we think of as being synonymous with an honor. It's, it's such an incredible honor and privilege to be a part of advancing equity in my workplace. I'm not sure everybody gets to say that about their job. Um, and so it's something I never want to stop being a part of. Um, and that's how I think about, you know, my identity and my role in our, in our DEI committee. Well, it's tough to follow that, but I will attempt um, to share some thoughts as well. Um, what I think about um, when I was first asked this prompt, uh, prompt and, and also in part of structuring the half-day training that um, Mar mentioned earlier, I think a lot about um, positionality and the ways in which positionality and intersectionality are, are linked. So, um, of course, everyone is going to be shaped by their collective experiences. That is going to create its own biases. and um, there and many people, and I would argue most people have ways in which they've uh, experienced uh, privilege and ways in which they've maybe experienced less privilege. And all of those things shape this conversation in really important ways. Recognizing how those things intersect is really important. Um, to that end, I think um, diversity of uh, 
of position um, in a number of different ways is important when we're structuring something like this. It's very, very important to get a lot of different perspectives um, in order to make sure we're understanding the ways in which um, we are expressing biases or um, navigating unconscious bias as we're looking at this project and trying to get um, this very important work off the ground and get uh, this very important work um, sustained in this space. Um, so to me, those are kind of the two touchstones um, that have the most um, meaning and importance as well as, um, you know, the most prominence um, when we're discussing anything about how our personal experiences shape this work and how our identities shape this work. Um, so I keep, I just keep coming back to that and I try to continue to return to that um, as we think about these things and as we work on these things um, as an ongoing process. I guess that leaves me. Um, sorry, everyone, my Wi-Fi is sort of being weird. So if I cut out, I apologize. Um, but I sort of feel like what brought me to this work was um, I always had a very um, crystallized view of the way that I thought the world should be. And it involved a lot of acceptance and not really um, having the same institutionalized anxiety and stress and exclusion um, that I feel like the legal profession had. And I feel like in law school, I was really exposed to different things that we could do with this career and the way that it could look like. And I just feel really grateful to now be in a workplace where I can contribute to um, making that vision a reality and making people feel included and um, that the law doesn't have to be scary and there's space for people to succeed in it. And um, yeah, and I think that when you ground um, DEI work in space, in times, and remembering sort of the things that made you hurt and the things that made you feel free. Um, you can only be a more effective um, advocate for other people because when I know what it felt like to sit in class and somebody make a comment um, or to be in a workplace or even from friends and family who have those same experiences. So I feel like what, what I bring to this work is remembering that like I don't want any other um, person to have that same anxiety or feel like they can't be included in this space the way that I think that there's so many brilliant people who I think would make incredible advocates, but just feel so shut out by this profession. Um, and so that's kind of why I'm also in like the community partnerships outreach uh, subcommittee, because I think that this is bigger than just us as an organization. It's um, kind of rewriting the playbook and like what this looks like and, you know, who's not being who's not being allowed into the lunch table and why they should be. Um, but yeah, so that's sort of my path to DEI. And I think at the end of the day, our identities, we always talk about this in DEI, that it's not just um, talking about yourself professionally and it's not just like an article you read or a book you engaged with. It's bigger than that. And it's like soul work and it's you growing as an individual as well. And I think that that's so profound um, to sort of be on your own journey of growth and um, unlearning and relearning in that, the, the humility that it takes to do that, um, I think only makes us better people and better advocates. And at the end of the day, hopefully better lawyers. Yeah, thank you all. And I guess just one more piece to add as to why I am here and why I'm so passionate about um, DEI work as well. Um, I think people are just starting to listen now because the reality is that DEI work has always been a thing. Um, and people have been advocating for years, for centuries. <laughs> um, but now people are actually starting to listen and we're finally starting to take action. Um, and maybe the way that DEI work has become more mainstream now is not ideal 
but I think that it's very encouraging that we can take that we can take action steps towards um, just really challenging those inequities that we see not only in law but in medicine and in every other field that people are working in. Um, but with that, um, I guess we can kind of start that Q and A portion. My PowerPoint's not up anymore, but um, would anyone like to start us off with any questions that you might have? There was one question in the chat uh, about how many staff HLA has and, and Matt answered it. I'll just read it aloud so everyone hears uh, about 22 staff members. We have another question. How do you engage um, your colleagues? Another one is how did you develop the baseline staff survey? So I'm not sure which one you all want to tackle first. I'd be happy to start with the baseline staff survey um, only because that was like, very early on in our process. And um, we in, co in committee meetings, we developed questions that we wanted to um, ask each other and we refined it and um, it went through many different versions it was a very collaborative process and I think it actually be really interesting for me to go back and look at all the different versions of it because they're all saved on our our collective drive but um it uh it was really asking people what are you interested in learning and what areas do you want to explore Does someone else want to answer the other question um, about how do we engage our colleagues? I'm happy to if no one else wants to, but I want to give someone else a chance to answer that. I'm certainly happy to jump in since you answered the last one. Um, that is an ongoing process and obviously um, engagement is something that's really important on a lot of levels um, over time. But um, we have a number of things that we've done um, at HLA that I think work really well. Um, we've made it uh, really clear that folks are, are welcome and encouraged um, to participate in, um, you know, the sort of between monthly meetings subcommittee activity, but we also have um, a committee meeting once per month that um, we took pains to make sure was at a time when most staff would be available. Um, so that, uh, and we have pretty broad interest um, within our relatively small organization. So a lot of folks um, come to that on a rolling basis. Uh, but an additional thing that we do that I think actually really helps with staff engagement and staff involvement is um, we have protected time during our monthly all staff meetings um, to discuss DEI issues and um, we often, as I think Mara, mentioned, Mara or Victoria mentioned earlier, will do uh, small trainings during that time as well. Um, so uh, folks often, um, I, I think folks are more engaged because we have this um, space set aside at a time when everyone needs to be present. Um, and we also um, really, really strongly encourage participation for our half day retreat. And I think that that was similar, it provided a lot of um, infrastructure supports that um, then carry over in other contexts. 
Thank you, Kara. Um, there's another question in the chat. Did compensation ever come up in your conversations in terms of recruiting and retaining a diverse staff that represents the community? Yes, it did. And um, uh, the, a question on equitable compensation is, is one of the questions on our recent survey that we just disseminated um, earlier this month. And so we have now a lot of input um, from our staff on that on that topic that we'll be sharing with our senior management team. Um, I, I'm afraid I can't answer any more because it's it hasn't been something we've discussed a lot yet, but um, we have begun to explore it. Does anyone else want to add, um, Alex or Victoria or Kara, anything to that? Um, the only thing I would add to that, just because it's something I'm really proud that we're doing at HLA, is um, part of that discussion uh, was also compensation of folks who are um, uh, who are working with our organization on an internship or fellowship basis, um, which permits us to work with folks at a lot of different um, stages in a way that reflects compensation. Um, I think that's really important and I'm really proud that we're doing it. So I wanted to make sure I gave it a shout out. All right, we have another question. What challenges did you encounter in identifying action steps and how has interacting with the board affected the work of your committee, if at all? I hear two separate questions there and I let me just answer the second part first. Um, interacting with the board has really been fantastic. I've, you know, I'm not sure I would be going to board meetings every quarter as a staff person, I'm, I'm going in my capacity as a member of the DEI committee, well, as chair this year, and in the future when I'm not chairing, I imagine I might go just as a member of the committee, and it's, it's such a fantastic opportunity to interface with our board members, to learn about the work that they do outside of HLA, to learn about their areas of expertise, and they've been really generous with their time and input. I've met with several board members outside of, you know, that context, um, in particular when we were creating the internship program. Um, you know, the the internship program, the DEI internship program um, was new to HLA. So I wanted input from people who've done, uh, who've created internship programs before, who have supervised interns. And I talked to a lot of board members about their programs um, and they really helped me uh, think about how to um, create a, an opportunity that was, that met the needs of, of our intern and, and not just the needs of the organization. So it'd be really reciprocal and, um, and supportive. And so I'm, I'm grateful to the board for, you know, providing us with expertise like that. Um, what was the first part of the question? I'm sorry, I've got so wrapped up in the second part, I forgot the first. Uh, let me go back for a sec. Uh, what challenges did you encounter in identifying action steps? Does anyone else on our on our steering team want to respond to that? Or shall I? Okay, well, I think we do experience challenges. I mean, we had a lot of goals, as you saw. I think we had four slides of goals. And then early on in the um, in the presentation, you saw our achievements. And it was a, it was a smaller list. So, you know, we haven't achieved everything that we set out to do. Um, I don't consider that, you know, a failure in any way. The fact that we are meeting regularly, um, that we have momentum, that we are have plans and, and goals for the next year um, is is very exciting. Uh, but I, I think 
I think it's important to like have a long view for this work because we're not necessarily going to be able to make all the changes we want right away. So balancing that with an, uh, an, a zeal and enthusiasm that never abates <laughs> has been key, I think. Um, so like a specific challenges, um, well, the pandemic, you know, interrupted, you know, the pandemic just has, has created a lot of challenges um, to our outreach. Like we haven't, I think if, if, if we weren't working under pandemic conditions, we probably would have um, explored innovative ways to conduct outreach to our client community more um, and, and been able to move more on that on that subcommittee's goals but it's been really challenging given the circumstances that we're all working remotely to even know how to to really delve deeply into that um, we do have ideas about how to do that going forward and we're really excited about them thanks mara um i'm just going to keep going down the list with some of these questions um, how would you describe how DEI committee members have made room for this work along with their other work at HLA? I'm gonna keep answering questions if no one else on the steering team pipes in. <laughs> so, um, but if anyone else wants to, please. I could answer this in Mara. I'll, I'll like, okay. rest your voice for a little bit. Um, so, I think that this one was, this is why I think that people choosing which subcommittee they're on is so key um, because they can choose something that they're either passionate about or have experience in. Um, so the people that were in my uh, subcommittee that was like community partnerships and outreach for people that were comfortable with community organizing, had some experience with it or had some connections already. So I think um, to galvanize staff members to work. I think letting people choose which projects excite them and things that they have experience in or are passionate about is really huge. Um, I would say that for us as a steering committee, uh, we would meet frequently. And I also just feel like being on the steering team just came with a level of responsibility. Um, I feel like that we just sort of um, made that time. But I think that scheduling, or I think the deadlines, it sounds so like basic, like, what they teach you when you enter middle school. But I really do think having deadlines and having frequent meeting times is so pivotal because I think that there's so often, and I think when we first started, um, it's sometimes hard when you're like, oh, we'll just do this, but there's not really an end goal or there's not, a, oh, we're meeting in two weeks. Um, and so I think that having deadlines has been really pivotal, at least for my subcommittee. I wasn't in the other subcommittees and knew how they worked, but I think that just having internal deadlines was really um, impactful and having frequent meeting times. And I think when you have those, people can make time for it along their other work um, because it's kind of rolled into your daily calendar and you're seeing, oh, I have a meeting coming up and I said that I would contact those three people. Um, so yeah, I'm a big fan of deadlines. I think they work. All right, I'm seeing three more questions here before we kind of transition into the next part of our workshop. Um, for this question, are we working on a process to make colleagues feel comfortable filing complaints when they experience discrimination in the workplace? Um, yes, uh, our um, uh, one of our staff people who's responsible for that area, um, she wears a lot of hats. So. Um, but that kind of human resources is, is one of the areas that she's also responsible for, has shared um, with, at our last staff meeting um, the, our, our policy on anti-discrimination. And um, I, I, 
And I think I would like to see, and I think we're probably heading in this direction, um, having supervisors talk about um, employees' rights and, and, and policies that protect them on a regular basis in supervision as well. But we do have you know, a commitment from senior management to share those policies, make them available to everybody. And, um, you know, we just, that was a, that actually, that content area was one of the questions on our recent survey. So we were able to gauge how comfortable staff feel reporting um, either discrimination that they've experienced or discrimination that they've observed. And um, so we can now use that data to be really responsive and make sure that any areas that we have identified as, as areas for growth or improvement that we're, we're really addressing as an organization. So everything, you know, we're gonna share all of the results from our survey with our senior management team so that that can shape what they do. Um, and then the DEI committee as well will be identifying ways to make sure that if there is, if anyone experiences or observes discrimination in the workplace that they, they know exactly um, how to report it and what, what their rights are. I hope that was responsive to the question. All right, uh, well, last two questions here. Um, how did you address any resistance to acknowledging white privilege in your workplace? I think um, for me, just like modeling and telling the truth are two things that I know that I can do um, to, to uh, address any resistance that might show up. I, I feel like we've been really fortunate at HLA where we've had really, we've had so much support from our leadership. We've had a lot of interest and enthusiasm for our staff. So I can't say that I have necessarily, you know, encountered this problem the way that I imagine one would in lots of other organizational settings. Um, but I think, just modeling and taking responsibility, being accountable and telling the truth about systemic racism is um, how I would address any resistance that I observed. I just wanna to add to what Mara was saying a moment ago um, because I really strongly agree with it. One of our um, mandatory trainings at an all staff meeting was actually a training about white supremacy in the workplace. Um, and the staff that we were working with that day were, um, uh, I would say pretty open to ideas. We didn't encounter a lot of overt resistance in that training. Um, I do think that there's a lot of ways in which modeling um, and setting tone is really valuable in those conversations, making it clear that this is a space um, where these ideas are accepted as important to discuss and important um, to grapple with can really um, make a difference in those spaces. Um, but I also agree with Mara that I, I just don't think there, we have a lot of staff who are inclined to express resistance to that basic idea um, within those spaces as we're discussing it. And I do want to, sorry, I just want to pipe in that if, because I, if you experience more resistance in your workplace, which I'm sure is, is very common in lots of workplaces, I think the the best way to counter it, to deal with that is to make sure that senior management really supports the work of the DEI committee and um, really throws its support behind it and 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 makes room for these conversations and models it because um, if it's an expectation of the workplace by senior management that that staff are engaging in these conversations then it's more likely to occur even if there is resistance. 
just to build briefly on Mara's answer, um, which I also agree with, uh, I think uh, one of the ways in which response to that is important if it's present is making sure that staff have a clearly articulated and effective method for reporting um, resistance they're encountering in spaces other than um, something like a company-wide training, because a lot of the time that resistance may come out in spaces where it's not obvious that it's occurring um, and it may not um, be readily present to supervisors. So having part of responsive leadership is making sure folks know how to respond if something, um, if they encounter that resistance in a one-to-one -one context or in other smaller contexts. All right, and then for our final question, it's talking more about um, community outreach. So Alex, maybe you might want to answer this one. Um, do you have thoughts about how to reach folks who are not already organized or who are experiencing structural inequities that have been tough to organize around historically? Yeah, I was hoping you'd let me answer this one. Um, yeah, so I think that this is such an important question. Um, the one thing I do want to say is no marginalized community is a monolith. And when we talk about grounding ourselves in the work of communities. That doesn't mean that there's like one community that's organized and they all have a piece of paper and they say, we want this. And we say, great, thank you. It's about parceling through uh, community wants and like your relationship with communities and having your clients feel safe to tell you ways that um, things that have made things more difficult for them, uh, bears that they've encountered. So I think um, in the first, the one first part about this is when I was first learning about community lawyering, I was kind of had this like pine sky vision of like a lawyer going to a community and asking what they want. And it's usually held in like the basement of a church. Um, but that's not really how it ends up in practice. And at least in my uh, medical legal partnership for immigrants practice, a lot of outreach looks like going to clients where they feel comfortable. Um, so seeing how they're organized in um, when meeting their physicians or in a community health center, COVID obviously put um, like popped that balloon a little bit. Um, but I think that that is a way of meeting the community where they are and when they're safe, um, then you can hear what their barriers to access are and then you can advocate for them further. Um, so I think that in terms of reaching folks that aren't already organized, seeing where their safe spaces are and so they know that they can feel safe with you and that you are an alliance. And then um, actually being there to listen to what their concerns are. Um, and I think that a lot of that is really tough because I've noticed with social media, um, in the pandemic, it feels like a lot of the suggestions I've seen have been like Facebook Live events. I know that a lot of other Equal Justice fellows are using that um, or like certain texting um, applications, but like Wi-Fi access and technology access is in and of itself um, not, you know, not everybody has that. So we are currently in the process of looking into other ways of doing that. But I think right now, whatever your work is, for example, my work being in health law, um, meeting clients directly where they feel safe in health facilities, but that may be a different space for you. Um, but yeah, I think it is, it's, it's certainly more challenging, of course. Um, it's not as easy as when there is a, you know, community organization um, that organizes people. But I think that that's a good first place to start. And then seeing, I think that um, if you make one person feel safe, they will then tell their friends, this attorney makes me feel safe. And I already have clients, I'm not an immigration attorney, unfortunately, but I'll have clients saying to me, like, I met somebody on Facebook who needs this assistance. Can I send them to you? And like, I think that that's very rare. And we really need to recognize like the power of positivity and being a good ally to somebody um, that does reverberate in the community. And if you start making those bonds with 
certain people, I think that that really does reverberate. I also think, oh, one more thing, um, a lot of community centers and churches, um, other religious spaces will have like bulletin boards and like cork boards where information will go up. And if um, internet access isn't a thing now that people are vaccinated and maybe going into shared spaces as much, um, that may be a good place to put like a know your rights guide or like contact information moving forward. Um, and that was something that we were um, exploring with like vaccine fear um, and maybe printing those up in, in certain community spaces where people may gather. Um, but yeah, that is definitely, it's kind of community by community, but those are just some suggestions I have. Thank you, Alex. I also really loved what you said about just meeting people where they are and making sure that you're listening to the needs of community members and not assuming what they need is very important when you're doing this type of work. Um, and we have half an hour left, so I think I'm going to transition us into our second part um, of this workshop. Um, but also thank you all for your questions. And if you have any more, please feel free to put them in the chat as we move forward. I'm going to go ahead and share my screen one more time. So just given the conversations that we just had, um, I'd love to hear from all of us on what DEI looks like to us in the workplace. And the responses that we have here are what we're going to use to kind of shape our conversations in breakout rooms in just a moment. So you can go back to Poll Everywhere um, and just take a minute or two to record your responses and they should pop up on the screen here. Also, if there's any responses that stick out to you, definitely take note of that so that we can use those um, for our conversation in the breakout rooms. All right, I'm sorry once again if you didn't get a chance to write your response in there, but that's also what the breakout rooms are for, so we can get a chance to um, talk a little bit more about what your responses were or what they could have been if you didn't get a chance to uh, type your answer in. All right, so in a breakout rooms, oh wait, can I share the word cloud? I will figure out a way 
to do that. Maybe I'll take a screenshot and then I can send it. All right. So within our breakout rooms, here's what I would like all of us to do. Um, so this will be a chance for all of us to introduce ourselves, your organization, the type of work that you do. Um, and then you can discuss um, your responses from the poll. If there's anything that stuck out to you or if there's anything that you wanted to say but you didn't get a chance to type, um, that would be a good time to talk a little bit more about that question of what DEI looks like in the workplace. Um, and then following that, um, what would you like DEI to look like in the workplace? Um, I would also like us to talk a little bit more about how our organization, how our different organizations are currently adopting DEI policies, um, what are areas of improvement for your organization specifically, and how you will get there. Um, and I would also like us to record our responses. So within um, the breakout rooms, if you could have one note taker, um, that would be wonderful. And also, if you are not familiar with Jamboard, I'm going to um, share that with you all in the chat. I will drop this below. Um, but Jamboards are a Google tool, which is really exciting to use. It's an interactive um, tool that everyone can kind of collaborate on. Um, and within the Jamboard, depending on which breakout room you're in, it should say on the top here, um, you can have some space to take notes on your conversation. So one more time, just in case there's a lot of information I just threw at you. Um, so we're gonna go into breakout rooms. Um, you're gonna introduce yourself and your organization and then we will answer all of those questions or respond to the poll um, and also respond to the questions on the Jamboard. Alrighty, I will share the Jamboard as well. Give me a second. And Daniel, I think you were going to put us into those breakout rooms. Awesome, thank you.